What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. see a very important shift in John's gospel. We're going to see an important shift in, you know, what the gospel focuses on for the remainder that we have. We're also going to see an important shift in the behavior of the religious leaders towards Jesus. And we're going to see an important shift in the behavior of Jesus in general. And so uh, the first important shift that we're going to see is just what John focuses on for the rest of this gospel. And, you know, the ministry of Jesus up to this point in the first ten and a half chapters chapters that we've seen here have covered almost three years of his ministry. And and now we're going to see this important shift where the next 10 and a half chapters are going to only cover the final week, the final week, including his death and resurrection. And so we have 10 and a half chapters covering the first three years of Jesus ministries and now 10 and a half chapters just covering this final week. So 50% of John's gospel is focused on this last final week of Jesus's life. And that's more than any of the other gospel Uh, Luke spends 25% of what he writes on this final week. Uh, Matthew spends 33%. Mark spends 40%. And John here spends 50% of what he writes on this final week. But all of the gospel writers are putting more emphasis and more of their time in this final week of Jesus' life and ministry than anywhere else in Jesus' life and ministry because this is what he does in this final week is the most significant and important aspects of his ministry and so they really emphasize that and so that's the first shift that we're going to see here at the end of chapter 11 is this shift that really comes into this final week of Jesus life and the second important shift is in the behavior of the religious leaders towards Jesus in the final week leading up to Jesus's death and the third important shift is the behavior of Jesus and what he spends his time doing in the final week of his life. Now, as we look at these important shifts, we're going to see three very big negative responses starting at the end of chapter 11, going into uh, the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, First, we're going to see the negative response of the religious leaders uh, towards Jesus's ministry and himself. Uh, And then we're going to, you know, this is something that we've seen a lot of already. This negative responses isn't something new to us, but there is going to be something that we will see within their response that is new. Second, we're going to see the negative response that is actually a little more surprising because it's not coming from the religious leaders. It's coming from one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, And so that's going to be something that is interesting. And it's not directed towards Jesus and something that he's been doing for someone else. It's going to be directed towards someone doing something for Jesus. 
And third, we're going to see a negative response once again from the religious leaders, but this time it won't be directed towards Jesus. It's going to be directed towards someone that Jesus has done a miracle for, that Jesus has miraculously changed. And something I want us to consider as we look at these three negative responses is how the world today responds to Jesus. How the world today responds when Jesus does something miraculous and changes us, or how the world responds when we seek to serve and minister on behalf of Jesus. And like we're going to see here in this passage this morning, what we see in Jesus' time with the negative responses is something that we see in our world today. There's a negative response to Jesus. There's a negative response to those who live for him and serve him. And we're going to see that and recognize that. You know, if you've been living for Jesus for for any amount of time, I'm confident that you have experienced this. You've seen how the world responds to Jesus. You recognize that it's a negative response. Now, it's not hard to understand why a world that is completely against Jesus would respond negatively to him, but there are some responses that we're not expecting, that are surprising, and those are the responses that we see from a group that we wouldn't expect, and we're going to see that in our text this morning, where I'm sure Mary wasn't shocked by the religious leader's negative responses, but I'm sure that she was taken off guard by being rebuked by one of the disciples. That was a group she wasn't expecting that from. She wasn't expecting expecting that negative response. And in the same way, oftentimes, you know, we're expecting the negative response of the world against us, but we're not expecting it to come from someone in the church. And so when it happens from someone in the church, all of a sudden we can be taken off guard. It can be a little more difficult because we're taken by surprise when that happens. And I'm sure some of you have had that. You've experienced that. You've seen that negative response come from someone who's in the church. Now, some of you might also have had a a, a negative response because of a miraculous change that's happened in your life. You know, all of us have that change when we accept Jesus Christ and we aren't what we used to be. We're no longer that old creation. The Lord's changed us and and that change has been manifest in our behavior and our actions and our words. And there are people who liked our old us. They liked how we used to speak. They liked the things we used to do. They liked partying with us. They liked doing those things. And they're not too pleased with the new us. And so you have some negative responses, and unfortunately, sometimes it's from people that are close to you, from people that you love, from family, from friends, that they don't like the miracle that Jesus has done in your life. They don't like the transformation that has happened, and so you get this negative response from them. And so as we look at these three different situations this morning, I'm confident that all of us can be able to relate to some of them or maybe all of them and realize, hey, this is something that as believers we experience in our world today. And as we look at these things, we're going to focus on three ways in which we can respond. Because we face these negative things, we face these negative responses, so so how as believers should we respond in kind to that? How should we be able to deal with that? And we're going to look at three things to help us respond in a proper way. Now remember we finished last week with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And there were two different responses to this amazing miracle. There was that group who believed in Jesus because that miracle proved who he was. And then there was that group that ran to the religious leaders and told them of this miracle. 
And when the religious leaders heard of this miracle, they've seen Jesus do a lot, but raising someone from the dead, you know, that was the biggest thing so far. They gather this council together and they're disturbed. And they come to this conclusion that, you know what, if we don't do something about this Jesus, every Jew is going to believe that he's the Messiah. Because the miracles that he's doing is drawing all this belief, and they were concerned about the response, not only that the Jews would have, but also that Rome would have. If everyone's saying Jesus is our Messiah, he's the one that we're going to follow, Rome's going to have an issue with that. They're going to destroy our temple, and they're going to destroy our nation. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, he comes up with his plan, and his plan is ultimately, it's better that we kill Jesus, one man, instead of allowing Rome to destroy our whole nation. So they come up with this plan, and that's where we left off last week, and we pick up with this very important shift in the Gospel of John. Chapter 11, verse 53 says this, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death, Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jew was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke openly among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So we're told that from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. When John speaks of that day, he's referring to the day that they had that council, that they came together and they made that decision to say, you know what, we're done. We're going to kill Jesus. And so from that day, they start this plot to seek to kill Jesus. Now, up to this point in time in Jesus' ministry, we've seen him out and about, out and open. He's sharing his teaching so that the crowds can hear. He's doing miracles for all to see. He speaks openly in the synagogue, openly in the temple. The religious leaders have been able to listen. The religious leaders have been able to see. And so all of it has been kind of public for the most part. The miracles and the messages that Jesus had given have been in front of crowds for people to see. And up to now, the religious leaders have been unwilling to kill Jesus. They've been unwilling to arrest Jesus and try to seize him and destroy him. And really for two main reasons that we've seen. One is fear of the multitudes that love Jesus. They don't want the backlash that might come if they sought to kill or arrest him. And we also saw another reason was because it wasn't in God's timing, and so God wouldn't allow it. You know, there were times that they wanted to and maybe would have, but yet the Lord kept them from doing it. Well, now we're going to see this important shift in the behavior of the religious leaders towards Jesus. They are now at the point where, hey, we're no longer waiting. We're no longer delaying. Our plot is to take him and to kill him. And because of this shift in their behavior, we now see a shift also in the behavior of Jesus as well. Notice what we're told in verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So it's important to note here that Jesus and the religious leaders, they are on a collision course. And that collision course is going to end with Jesus allowing them to kill him. 
And we see a significant shift here, and that collision course is only going to be a week from this point. So it's coming quickly. They're, they're, they're ready to kind of collide together, and this big culmination is going to happen. But notice that Jesus is now altering his course because the religious leaders are on a course to kill him. And so now what he had been doing openly which is proclaiming the message that he had and, and doing miracles and, and being in front of lots of crowds. Now that has changed and his course is a lot different. And some of the changes that Jesus makes here is he changes from a public outreach to a private inreach. He shifts his emphasis from public signs and teachings to private intimate moments with his disciples where he's encouraging them and preparing them for his death and for his departure. He stays away from the big city of Jerusalem where the religious leaders are, and he heads off to this country town of Ephraim and keeps his distance because why? God's timing is for one more week to transpire for Jesus to be crucified, and so he's not allowing this collision course to transpire until that time. Now, you would think, wow, we're already here. There's only like another chapter of John's gospel. No, he spends another ten and a half chapters dealing with these final seven days in Jesus' life. And it's amazing because we get some wonderful insights into what Jesus does to invest in his disciples, to prepare them for his departure, to reveal to them some great, uh, wonderful things. So we have a lot that we're going to learn here in these next ten and a half chapters. But there is this important shift that takes place right here where now we're moving in to the final week of Jesus' life. Now there's an important backdrop, backdrop sorry, to this shift. We're told that the Passover of the Jews was near and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, we've already seen Jesus go to several Passover feasts throughout his ministry and time in the Gospel of John. And now we're going to come to his final Passover feast, but it's the most significant one because he is the Passover lamb. It is going to be on Passover that he, as all the Jews, take their lambs and they sacrifice their lambs in remembrance of the Exodus. Jesus himself is going to be the ultimate Passover lamb who is going to be crucified on Passover. So it's just a week away to Passover, and it's a very significant backdrop because that's coming, and that's when Jesus is going to die. But it's also significant because at this time, you know, in Jerusalem, there's only about 100,000 people that live there. But when Passover came, millions of people crowded into Jerusalem to worship, to come to the temple, to celebrate this feast. And so it wasn't uncommon for people from the country towns to start traveling early into Jerusalem, finding places to stay, as we're told here, also to purify themselves, get themselves ready for this feast. And so the backdrop is the Passover's coming, and people from the country, where Jesus and his disciples are, are traveling now into the big city of Jerusalem. And notice here what we see from the religious leaders as they're in Jerusalem with this backdrop, with their plot to kill Jesus. Then the religious leaders sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. 
So notice this, the, the Passover's coming up, the religious leaders are getting together, they're speaking among themselves, and they ask this very important question. Do you think Jesus is going to come to this Passover feast or not? And the reason this question is important to them is because their whole plot is based upon Jesus coming. You know, up to this point in time, Jesus has come to every single feast that there is. And so they're thinking, well, great, he'll come to the Passover feast. And they have this plot set up and they've talked to people and made this command. If anyone knows the whereabouts of Jesus, you better tell us so that we can seize him. But they're wondering, you know, is he going to come from the country and travel into Jerusalem so that we can ultimately fulfill our plot and get him and um, put him to death. So here's the first negative response that I want us to look at this morning, and that's the negative response of the religious leaders towards Jesus and towards his ministry. And really the only thing that has changed much in the times that we've seen them interact with one another is that the religious leaders, really they have magnified their hatred of Jesus and their willingness to do something about it. You know, the first time that they have an interaction, the religious leaders respond in a negative way. You know, they don't like what Jesus does. They don't like what Jesus says. And that hatred of Jesus has just continually grown for the last three years. And now they've gotten to the point where it's like, all right, we're done. We're ready. We're going to kill Jesus. You know, I think this is something that we see in our culture today. This continual growth of hatred towards Jesus, which ultimately culminates and people wanting to do whatever they can to destroy Jesus and the influence that he has. You know, if you look over the past 50 years of American history, there's been a continual growth of hatred towards Jesus, towards Christianity, towards the impact and influence that it has on our nation. And as that hatred has grown, so has the negative responses towards Jesus and those who follow him. And one of the things that our culture has tried to do because they hate Jesus is they want to remove Jesus from as much as the culture as they possibly can. And unfortunately, we've seen this be more and more successful. They've taken him out of the schools. They've taken him out of different areas of society. And that's their goal. We want to remove Jesus and his influence and his impact because we want to destroy him. Now, since our culture hates Jesus and has many negative responses to Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that they don't like us. It shouldn't surprise us of this response that they have. And as we see this here, I don't think it was surprising for the disciples. But now we're going to you know, see a warning that Jesus gives. It's going to happen in John 15. I think it's important in light of what we're seeing here. John 15, 18 through 20 says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You know, the world hated Jesus, but notice he makes very clear, hey, if they hated me, they're definitely going to hate you. I mean, he is perfect and sinless. If they hated him, they're going to hate us who follow him. And he just wants to make that very clear to us. So don't be you know, deceived into thinking that you know, the world's just going to love you and accept you as you follow me. No, they hate me. They don't want anything to do with me. And so be aware that they're not going to want anything to do with you either if you're truly following me as you should. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. 
So the first negative response that we see here from the religious leaders is towards Jesus, towards his ministry. And this is something that shouldn't surprise us. But what we see next is surprising. It's something that I'm sure took uh, the people in, uh, involved with this, you know, got them off guard a little bit. We're coming into chapter 12 now, starting verse 1 says this. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So six days now before the feast of uh, Passover and Jesus, he travels to Bethany. That's what we saw last week. He was there. It's the same place that he went to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's with the same group of people. There's Lazarus there. There's Mary and Martha, his sisters, and they have this meal. Now we're not told, you know, the reason for it, but it's quite likely like this is a celebration meal. Jesus, we want you here to celebrate the wonderful miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. But it was also these people that we were already told he loved he loved spending time with and so Jesus comes and he has this meal with his close friends and we're told something happens during this dinner that would be quite unusual that wouldn't be something that would normally transpire in a dinner and notice what we're told then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And so during dinner, Mary does something very unusual. She takes this very costly oil of spikenard. She comes to Jesus and she anoints the feet of Jesus with this costly oil. And then she takes her hair and she wipes Jesus's feet that have this oil all over it with her hair. Now, Mary has this pound of very costly oil. Now this oil was uh, valued about a year's salary. We're going to see Judas says we could sell that for 300 denarii. Uh, one denarii was about what someone would make in a day. So it was about a, a year's salary was this. So you know today maybe $40,000, $50,000 would be the value of this pound of spikenard. So this was something that was very costly. This was something that was quite expensive. Uh, and so Mary takes this and she uses it to anoint Jesus feet. And then, you know, there's some very unusual things that we see here. And I want you to note three reasons why. First, it was unusual because it's the job of the lowest servant to clean people's feet. That was not a job anyone wanted. You know, so if you were, you know, a middle servant or a high up servant, you never had to deal with, you know, the dirty feet of people walking on dirt roads coming into the home. Right when you'd walk into the home, the low servant was meant to wash the feet, not something anyone wanted to do. Well, Mary is putting herself in this humbled position where she's saying, hey, I am willing to be like that lowly servant to Jesus and to wash his feet. 
The second reason this was unusual is because in that culture, women typically didn't let their hair down in public. And so for Mary to wash Jesus' feet with her hair, she has to let her hair down in order to do that, which reveals that, you know what, she was more concerned with the service that she was offering to Jesus than what especially maybe the men in the room would think of her for letting her hair down, which was not something normally women did in that culture in public. Now, the third reason this was unusual is because how expensive the oil is. I mean, to pour that amount of money, a whole year's worth of money onto someone's feet, that would have been like, whoa, you know, it would have definitely caught people's attention of the, the expense that was placed into this act of service and sacrifice from Mary. Now, you know what? This also showed something about Mary. Not only was this a, a huge sacrifice, a wonderful display of service and love, it showed that she knew something about Jesus that actually, as we continue through John's gospel, the disciples miss all the way till his death. And that's the fact that she knew he's going to die. The disciples kept denying that, even though Jesus plainly tells them that they just don't think it's going to happen. But yet Jesus says to all of them that are there um, that um, she kept this oil for the day of my burial. You see, Mary knew Jesus was going to die. And this is, you know, ultimately in that culture, you would anoint a body that just died with fragrances and oil before it was wrapped and put into a tomb. And she's basically doing this early, a week early. She's coming and Jesus understood why she's doing this. And she understood that she was seeking to prepare Jesus for his burial. And it was something that she used very costly oil to do. And so here, I just want you to know, Mary does something wonderful. It's something sacrificial. It's something that cost her a lot. And it's something that she should have been praised for. Something that everybody in the room should have encouraged her in and thought, this is wonderful, Mary. We would wish that we had offered that kind of thing to Jesus. But that is not the response that she gets. Notice the negative response she receives from Judas. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So it's already an awkward scene. I'm sure there's maybe this awkward silence of like Mary washing Jesus' feet, that's the lowly servant, pouring this super expensive oil, washing it with her hair instead of a towel. I mean, it was just unusual to begin with. And I'm sure just kind of everyone's just quiet, just kind of watching. And then Judas breaks the silence with this public rebuke of Mary. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, I want you to note something is, as Judas brings this rebuke against Mary, he wants to make it sound really spiritual, that there's a real good spiritual reason for why he's bringing this rebuke. Mary, do you understand how valuable that oil is? That's a year's salary. We could have sold that and we could have given it to the poor. They got many poor people that we could have ministered to instead of wasting that oil on Jesus's feet. But you know what? John reveals something very important about Judas and about his rebuke in verse 6. Notice what we're told. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. 
So Judas's rebuke of Mary's expensive display of love was not for the spiritual reasons that he claimed they were. It wasn't really to do anything for the poor. He didn't care about the poor. The reason he was mad is because he thought, hey, if you would have told me, I would have said, let's sell this. Why? So that we can put it in the money box that Judas was in charge of. And so, you know, the disciples are with Jesus. They're traveling all the time. They need money to, for lodging. They need money for food. And they entrusted Judas with the box that had the money in it. And we're told that he was a thief and that he used to take money from the box for himself. And so he's thinking, man, 300 denarii worth of oil, the amount that I could steal from that would be great. And, and this is really the heart of what Judas is saying. He's saying, why was this money wasted on Jesus when it could have been spent on me? Now, obviously, he doesn't say it that way. He wants to present this rebuke in some spiritual way of why didn't we give it to the poor? But the reality is it was all from selfishness. Now, something important to note here is that John is writing in retrospect. He's writing after these events have occurred and after he learned about Judas, because while this happened, John and the rest of the disciples were clueless of the kind of man that Judas was. They thought Judas was a great guy. I mean, they entrusted him with the money. They wouldn't have given him that if they knew he was stealing from it. You know, this wasn't something that they were aware of. They didn't know he was going to betray Jesus. Even when Jesus dips bread into uh, the bowl and says, whoever I give this to is going to go and betray me, they're still like, where's Judas going? You know, they don't get it. I mean, he obviously did a great job of convincing people he was something that he wasn't. He did a great job of convincing them, I am a true follower of Jesus. But he wasn't. He was a betrayer of Jesus. He convinced them that I am a trustworthy man. You can give all the money to me and I will hold it and you can trust me with it. But he wasn't trustworthy at all. He was a thief and he took that money for himself. He wanted everyone to think, oh, I'm so spiritual. I care about poor people. But he didn't. He just cared about himself. But he did a great job of convincing everyone, except for Jesus who knew what he was, of that he was something that he wasn't. You know, unfortunately, there are people like Judas in the church today. They're great at convincing you they're a follower of Jesus when they're not. They're great at convincing you that they're trustworthy when they're not. They're great at convincing you that they're super spiritual and that their intentions are spiritual when they're not. And unfortunately, that's just a reality. There are people within the church today who are hypocrites just putting on this show and trying to convince you that there's something that they're not. And that's bad enough, but it gets even worse when they feel like they should now start rebuking you. I mean, it's bad enough that Judas is what he is. You know, this complete hypocrite who's trying to pretend he's something that he's not. And now he comes and brings a rebuke against someone who actually is loving Jesus, who actually is serving Jesus, who actually is sacrificing for Jesus, which is completely what Judas was not doing. And he has the audacity to rebuke her, even though he's nothing like he should be. And he paints it in this spiritual way to try to convince others. And Matthew actually reveals that other disciples kind of jumped in and agreed with Judas. Yeah, you're right, Judas. Why does she waste this? What's wrong with you, Mary? He convinces others of his spiritual you know, rebuke when it wasn't really from the hearts of someone who wanted to give to the poor. But you know, I'm sure this probably took Mary off guard. 
Yeah, I would expect the religious leader to come to the door and maybe say something like this, but not one of the disciples, not anyone in this room. I would expect people to encourage this. I would expect people to, to help me you know, and bless me and, and encourage me in what I've just done, not discourage me with rebukes. You know, I'm sure if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you've had people in the church rebuke you and you know what? There was a biblical reason for rebuking. If you're in sin or doing something unbiblical, that's the biblical reason to be rebuked. So if you've been rebuked for that, well, you know, the Bible says you should be. But you know what? There are times when people rebuke you for just loving Jesus, just serving Jesus, just sacrificing for Jesus. And those are things that they have no business rebuking you for. And you need to learn how to respond properly when that happens because you can be taken off guard thinking, wait a second. What did I do to deserve a rebuke? I'm just loving on Jesus, serving Jesus, sacrificing for Jesus. Well, why would you come and say this to me? I'm sure Mary's thinking this of Judas. You know, I've had people do this in my own life. You know, I had someone rebuke me for being a missionary in Scotland because I was living and ministering in another nation. And according to them, I should have been ministering here in America and been closer to family. And so, you know, there was this rebuke of, you know, how dare you do that? That's not right to do that, according to them. I had someone rebuke me for sacrificing with time and money for going on a mission trip as a pastor, saying, wait a second, you should be here ministering as a pastor to your own fellowship and not off trying to help someone else's church. I bet someone rebuked me for putting my family as a priority, saying, wait, I should be your priority, not your family, and, you know, how dare you do that? Now, these types of rebukes, you know, no rebuke is pleasant, but these are worse. Because they're not biblical. They're not based on some kind of sin. You're in sin, you don't like to be rebuked, but at least you should be if you're in sin. But when you're serving Jesus and loving Jesus and sacrificing for Jesus, and then someone brings this rebuke who's in the church, that's really difficult to receive, really difficult to handle. So the question is, how should we deal with these negative responses when we're doing what's right? When we're loving on Jesus, when we're sacrificing for Jesus, and someone within the church brings some kind of rebuke against us. Well, I think the response of Jesus to Judas and his rebuke kind of gives us two important challenges to help us with how we should respond if we encounter this type of situation. Let's see how Jesus responds in verse 7 and 8. But Jesus said to her, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Notice that the view that Jesus had of Mary and what she did for him was very different than the view that Judas had of what Mary did for Jesus. Jesus understood what Mary did was wonderful. What Mary did was something that was a beautiful thing that she understood that he was going to die and this was really something that she kept for his burial. You know, the Gospel of Mark shares with us even more that Jesus says here, which I think shines some light on how Jesus responds Mark 14, verse 6 says, But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do good, do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has been come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
Notice the difference in the view of what Jesus sees from what Mary did versus what Judas sees from what Mary did. Jesus sees it as a good work. Judas sees this as some bad work. How dare you do this? We could have taken this money and, and given it to the poor, ultimately to my own pocketbook. Jesus recognized what it was. And notice not only is it a good work, he says, you know what? And this is, it. This is another thing, Judas. Whenever the gospel is preached, what Mary did is also going to be proclaimed. And what a wonderful thing. This is so great. This is such a beautiful thing that she did for me. It's not just going to be for this room. You know, whenever people are sharing what I am going to do, this wonderful truth of the gospel, me sacrificing my life, they're also going to talk about Mary and what she did for me. So the first thing to consider to help you deal with negative responses from people in the church is know that their negative response does not represent how Jesus feels about what you did for him. You know, when you and I serve Jesus, ultimately we should be serving him for his approval, not for the approval of others. And that should be the main thing that we're focused on. You know what? I'm sacrificing for Jesus. I'm loving on Jesus. You know, I'm serving Jesus. I'm doing it for his approval. And if other people don't see that, or if other people don't really care about that, or don't you know, promote that, instead they rebuke me for that, that's okay, because I'm not doing it for them. I'm not doing it for their approval. I'm doing it ultimately for him. And if I can be confident that Jesus is blessed by this, if I can be confident that Jesus is encouraged and loved by what I do, then that's okay. And it makes it so much easier to, to deal with you know, what other people are saying because what other people are saying can be quite discouraging if we lose sight of, well, wait a second, I'm not doing it for them, I'm doing it for him. And I know he's blessed. And that's why I did it, to bless him. And if they don't like it or if they have some issue with it, you know, oh well. Because I know what I'm doing is unto the Lord and done with the right reason and motive. You know, when I got rebuked because I was living on the mission field instead of living in America doing ministry, I didn't let that get me down. I didn't let that, you know, be something that, you know, oh man, I can't believe you feel that way. Because I recognize, hey, I know God's called me here. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. I know that being here instead of in America, and even though I'm far from family, I know this is something that blesses God. And if it doesn't bless you, I'm sorry for that. But I'm not here to please you. So that's just the reality. When someone's like, you know what? You should give me all your time and not give your family your time. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. So I am going to make my family the priority. And if you don't like that, I'm not going to get discouraged by that because I know this is what God has for me. And even though you can't see it, that shouldn't change and get us down because someone is upset that we're not doing something that they particularly would want us to do when it's not an unbiblical thing that we're doing. So first, negative response. Uh, I know that uh, there are negative responses that don't represent how Jesus feels with what you did. But the second thing to consider is to help you deal with negative responses from people in the church is seen in what Jesus responds again with Mary. Notice what he says. Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. I love those first words. Let her alone. Jesus is now defending Mary against Judas. Judas, don't you talk like this to Mary? Don't you rebuke her for this? You let her alone. 
You don't even understand what she's doing. And Jesus even knew the heart of Judas and what he was even claiming. You want to sound like you're all spiritual, like we're going to give this to the poor. I know your real heart. You let Mary alone. What she's doing is good for me. What she's doing is a blessing to me. And I think this is so important that, you know what? A great lesson for everybody in there of seeing Jesus defend the one who's sacrificing for him, the one who's serving him, the one who's loving him, and realize he didn't just do it for Mary. He does it for you. He does it for me as well. Psalm 62, 6 tells us this. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. I think it's interesting. David is writing this when he's being unjustly pursued by Saul. He hasn't done anything deserving of death except that Saul's jealous of him. And so Saul wants him to kill him. And David's saying, hey, God is my rock, my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And this is such a wonderful truth to remember. Hey, God is the one who defends me. And you know what? He does a much better job than you would or I would in trying to defend ourselves. So the second thing to consider to help you deal with negative responses from people in the church is let the Lord defend you. You know, we see this in Jesus himself. You know, he could have defended himself when all the accusations from the religious leaders come against him. He's just silent. He lets the Father deal with that. And here's something that, you know, I know it's hard for us. I know it's very difficult to allow God to defend us. We have this tendency when someone attacks, we want to attack back. When someone lies, we want to, you know, come back at them. It's difficult for us to receive, you know, something that is a rebuke when it's nothing that we've done wrong and just to let the Lord respond and defend us. But you know what? Here's something that I've discovered because I haven't always done this right and I'm sure neither of you. But when you start trying to defend yourself, Oftentimes, because someone has said something that's not true of you, you get angry. And then that anger typically leads you to sin in your response towards them. And so instead of waiting and letting the Lord deal with it and just staying righteous and right, we get angry and then in our own self, we're now in sin because of things that we're saying. And, oh, you dare say that about me. Well, let me bring up all the things about you. And we kind of attack and we become in that place of sinning ourselves. And so it's just best to let the Lord defend us, especially when you're confident, hey, that didn't do anything wrong. I know he's pleased, and if they don't like it, you know, I'm just going to let the Lord deal with this. So the first negative response that we see is from the religious leaders towards Jesus. The second negative response is from Judas towards Mary and her sacrificial loving uh, offer to Jesus. And now we're going to see the third negative response, which is from the religious leaders to someone that Jesus has touched and miraculously changed, verse 9 and 10. Now a great many of the Jews that he was uh, there that sorry now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus sake only but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus Well notice what we're told here a lot of Jews find out where Jesus is He's in this Bethany. He's having this meal. And notice that, you know, lots of times people came to see Jesus. But now we're told there's a group that they don't just want to see Jesus. There's someone else there at the house that they want to see. And that is Lazarus. They want to see what Jesus did for Lazarus because Lazarus is now raised from the dead. They're like, I want to see the man who was dead for four days, who's now sitting at a table with Jesus eating a meal. 
So since Jesus miraculously changed Lazarus' life by raising him from the dead, Lazarus was now a living testimony of the power of Jesus and of who Jesus was, which is God. So the Jews, they come, they see the miracle that Jesus did in Lazarus. But notice this, on account of Lazarus and on account of the miracle that Jesus did in Lazarus' life, it led many of those Jews to now believe in Jesus. As they look at the miracle, the transformation from a dead man to a live man, that was enough when they see Lazarus. Yeah, we've heard you preach, Jesus. We've heard what you say. But it's not till we saw this man's life change that we finally came to a place to say, you know what? We believe in you. Because of this, because of this transformation, because of the miracle you've done in Lazarus, it has led us now to put our belief in you. But you know what? This also put a target on Lazarus' back. Lazarus is walking around as the walking miracle of what Jesus has done that proves Jesus' power and it proves that Jesus is God. And guess what? The religious leaders have a big issue. They're trying to just crush anything that Jesus is doing. They're trying to kill Jesus. They have a plot to do it. And now they hear word of, well, you got another problem. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and now people are believing in Jesus because of this transformation in Lazarus' life. And so what do they do? Well, we're going to extend our plot a little bit. Jesus is not the only target now. We're going to kill him, and we're going to kill Lazarus. we got to get rid of both of these two to try to stop the spread of people believing in Jesus. So the third negative response is from the religious leaders towards Lazarus and the miraculous change in his life and how it led people to believe in Jesus. You know, this world is not like it when you and I go from living in darkness with them to living in light with the Lord. They don't like it when we go from living like them to living different than them like the Word of God tells us to. They don't like the change that happens in our life when we put our trust in Jesus and he does that miracle of transformation in us. But something that really upsets them, it's one thing if you're the only one who changes, but if you change and you're in the midst of a bunch of people like them and they look at your life and they look at that miracle and they look at how you've been changed and they say to themselves, wow, I want that. I, I want to believe in that person who's done that for you. That upsets them even more. Because not only are you now changed what they don't like, but your change is causing people to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Each one of us who has accepted Jesus, just like Lazarus, we got a powerful testimony. A powerful testimony of the life-changing work that Jesus has done in our lives. And that testimony is such a great tool to help draw people to a belief in Jesus. You know, if you go on our mission trip to Uganda this year, or if you've been before, you'll know that the pattern that we do when we go to schools or we go to prisons or at the evening crusades, you know, someone's always ready to share the gospel. But before the gospel is presented, there's usually at least two or three testimonies that happen before that. And that's purposeful because those testimonies are a powerful example of the life-changing work that the gospel can do. Because here's the message and people are like, well, well, can that really work with me? And so before they hear the message, they see 
wow, look at how this person was this and they were changed to that. That they were living in the sin and that God just transformed their life and they hear those things and then they hear the message that they need to believe so that they too can be someone who has that kind of testimony. But it is so powerful because it's the living example of what God can do to transform a life. And so as believers, we should always be ready to share our testimony. If we have an opportunity and we're sitting across from a coworker or a family member or a neighbor or whoever that doesn't know Jesus and they're willing to listen to our story, we should be ready to share with them what Christ has done to change our life because it's one of the most powerful tools we have to help someone come to a belief in Jesus. But you know what? We also need to be ready for the negative response that can come. When you share your testimony, there might be a negative response, but you know what? There might be a negative response because you're just living a transformed life. You know, we don't see Lazarus here, you know, sitting there at the table proclaiming the testimony of what Jesus did. They hated Lazarus because he was just the man who's walking around as this living example of the power of Jesus. And just as he lived his life, he drew people to Jesus because they see, wait, you were dead for four days. Now you're living and I can see the power of Jesus in your life. And so, you know, even if you're not sharing your testimony, if there is a clear change in your life and your actions and your words are different, people see that. And even that will bring negative responses because even that will lead people to the one who has changed your life. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed and will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. You know, you study church history, and even as we look at in the world today, we don't see it here in America, and sometimes the church is blind to the reality of what our brothers and sisters in Christ go through in other countries, who literally are being killed because of their belief in Jesus where it's illegal to go and proclaim the gospel. They do it anyway, and they're imprisoned or they're killed. But they realize that the sacrifice leads to people getting saved, and for them, they concluded it's worth it. You know, I think that's the big thing that we see here with Lazarus. I'm confident that he would have said, you know what? I might be on the religious leader's hit list, but it's worth it. Because people now are coming to believe in the one person that I love so deeply, Jesus Christ. My life is leading them to him. And if, my, if I get my life taken again, that's okay. It's worth it because people are coming to believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus was willing to give his life so we could be saved. And as his followers, that should be our heart. I'm willing to give my life so that others could be saved. Now, that might never happen in our culture. But you know what? There is persecution. And it's growing. And so there might come a day where it gets to the point where, you know, hey, if you do share the gospel or you whatever, that there's going to be some serious consequences that we would still stand up and say, we're going to do it. It's worth it for people to come to know Jesus. C.T. Studd wrote this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I think that's such a powerful truth that we need to recognize. You know, through all that Jesus has done for me, do we ever think, you know what, that's too much, Lord. That's too big of a sacrifice. You know, I can do this for you, and I can do that for you, but, I mean, man, that, that might cost me something 
more than I'm willing to, to sacrifice. No, there should be nothing that we're not willing to sacrifice for following Jesus. So when we do encounter these negative responses because we're living for Jesus, which we will, keep three things in mind. First, know that the negative responses do not represent how Jesus feels about what you did. Stay focused on him and know that he is pleased with you living for him. Second, let him defend you from the accusations and the attacks of people. And third, know it's worth it because you're leading people to Jesus. Let's pray.